0: One, two, three,
1: four. You are listening to Skylet the skylight books podcast skylight books is a general interest bookstore in the los Feliz neighborhood in los angeles you can shop with us from 10 a.m to 10 p.m or visit us online 24 7 at skylightbooks.com follow along at skylight books instagram and twitter you can subscribe to the podcast on podbean itunes and spotify thank you for listening and now on to the episode
2: Hello, my beautiful and lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Malia Marquez to talk about her new book, This Fierce Blood with Michael Zapata. Before we start, I just want to remind you that Skylight Books offers curbside pickup and online ordering on our website, www.skylightbooks.com. We are now also fully open in stores, so come on by and just remember to follow the mask mandates. So to res- it, bring your masks, please, just please bring your masks. And also just be respectful of the staff working and your fellow customers. Malia Marquez of mixed chicanx and Euro ancestry was born in New Mexico, grew up in New England, and currently lives with her family in Los Angeles. Her fiction has appeared online and in print and has placed in contests such as the 2019 Yes Yes Books Open Reading Period and the 2020 Staunch Short Story Prize. She holds a BFA in 3D Fine Art from Massachusetts College of Art and Design and an MFA in Creative Writing from Antioch Antioch? University Los Angeles. This Fierce Blood is her first novel. Michael Zapata is a founding editor of Make Literary Magazine and the author of the novel The Lost Book of Adana Moreau, winner of the 2020 Chicago Review of Books Books Awards for Fiction, finalist for the 2020 Heartland Booksellers Award in Fiction, and a Best Book of the Year for NPR, the AV Club, Los Angeles Public Library, and Bookpage, among others. He is the recipient of an Illinois Arts Council Award for Fiction and the City of Chicago DCASE. Individual Artist Program Award. He is on the core faculty of Story Studio Chicago and the MFA faculty of Northwestern University. As a public school educator, he taught literature and writing in high schools servicing dropout students. He currently lives in Chicago with his family. All right, welcome Michael and Malia. Thank you so much for both of you being here today. Thank you so much, really excited. Yeah,
1: thank you so much for having us. Really happy to be here.
2: No, Malia, I'm so excited to talk about your book. It's so it's so exciting. I know Michael's can't wait.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I love 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 this book. So, y'all are in for a treat. Oh, I'm so excited. Malia, you have a reading for us today?
1: I do. Um, I was just going to read the first chapter.
2: Perfect. 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 Well, uh, I'll let you take it away.
1: Thank you so much.
2: No problem.
1: Wilhelmina Harrington was so intent on skipping stones she hardly noticed dusk as it gathered around the farm by the small lake. With each throw she lifted her left leg and pulled back her right arm. A couple of years back she'd gone with her father to watch the Montpeliers play Burlington. In her mind she was not a 14 year old girl tossing rocks at a puddle but a pitcher on the mound. One after the other smooth discs skimmed with a surety that proved many, many hours of practice. The air was balmy, dense with the wetland odor of growth and decomposition. Hidden in a stand of cattails, a bullfrog began its rhythmic bass call. Mina waved away mosquitoes buzzing at her hairline in the back of her neck. She wound up for another, strike, you're out, and froze, half-connected to the earth, like a heron poised to snap up a fish. Something, a slight movement on the shore to her left, nothing more than a twitch, an exhale. She lowered both limbs slowly while her skin prickled with goosebumps, then held her breath as she turned to look. Just a few feet from her stood a large brown cat, motionless on a rock. Two smaller versions, cubs, stared out behind Nina assumed was there. Her heart felt like it would beat right out of her chest. She'd only ever seen a mountain lion stuffed and mounted eyes too shiny, made from glass, but the eyes watching her were warm, liquid, searching. The hunters and farmers still spoke of them, though they were all supposed to be killed off. She'd heard the men going on at the general store, buying buckshot and slugs. Why slugs? The big game's all gone. Uh Uh-uh. The men shook their heads. They're out there, all right, and if they come for my livestock, I'll be ready. The story went that in 1881, almost 10 years before, Alexander Crowell got the last one over in Barnard. Mina had believed it. It always broke her heart to see the moth-eaten coat of a mounted cougar and think that bit of wildness was gone from Vermont's hills forever. And yet it was the summer of 1890 and here she was, eyes locked with those of an animal that did not exist. An animal that reportedly had the power and desire to end her short life in an instant. The young ones were a few few shades lighter with fine whiskers Mina could just make out in the waning light. Emerging onto the narrow muddy shore from the undergrowth, they looked as startled by the encounter as Mina felt, but not nearly so scared. The big one flicked her tail as if to warn her cubs back as she sized up the girl. Fear left as quickly as it had risen. Something about the cat's stance was reassuring, though Mina could never have explained why. They had come to drink, not hunt. She retreated a step, The big cat blinked. In an instant, it was as if Mina's mind broke open. Memories, impressions, images flooded in, her own and others that could only belong to the animals there at the edge of the wood. The scent of the lavender Mina's mother had combed to her hair that morning. Sharp white teeth tearing into a fresh kill. Furry bellies turned up to catch the sunshine. Itchy red welts in the backs of arms where it was hard to slap away insects. A flock of wild turkey exploding from the high branches of an oak, streaking between trees over logs and stones, and gunshots cracking of the hearth of the farmhouse, the low murmur of reading aloud in the evenings, tendrils of steam rising from a cup of milky tea. It felt for a moment that seemed somehow wider than it was long, like gravity had eased its grip. Time slowed. There was no separation between the girl and the cats and the trees and the sky and the lake. Later that evening at the big wooden table in the farmhouse kitchen, Mina looked up the animals in a book of New England wildlife. She learned that they were mountain lions as she'd suspected, also known by other names like cougar, catamount, and puma. Mina lingered over the description running her fingers across the full-color scientific illustration as if she could lure the wild cats from the page Catamount, from late Middle English, meaning cat of the mountains. Her mother saw her studying the text as she tidied up after dinner. Reading up on ancient history, she asked. Nina opened her mouth to speak, then closed it, a feeling that what had happened at the lake was meant just for her, and an instinct to protect the cat stopped her from telling her mother what she'd seen. You really think they're all gone? Nina asked, touching the light pink triangle of a cub's nose, painted so that it appeared moist. I do, and I can't say I'm not glad, her mother replied, I have stories that would make your hair stand on end, why one night I went out later than usual to put in the goat's end. Mina yawned loudly, a tale for another time, said her mother, throwing Mina a concerned look up to bed with you. Mina was relieved, she had a sneaking suspicion that if she knew too much, the cats would never show themselves to her again. From that day on, Wilhelmina Harrington had visions of those mountain lions, what must have been dreams and imaginings, but seemed so real that she knew instinctively she should keep them to herself. How was it that she could track the bookers' lives through scattered pockets of deep forest? She grew up, and like her, the cubs matured. They found their own territories and mates, staying safely hidden in the wildest tangles of backcountry. Mina imagined the occasional hunter catching a flick of a black-tipped tail or masked face through a bramble, a long brown street bounding up a bare hillside. She thought of a man returning home to tell a wide-eyed story about how, contrary to fact, he had seen what he saw and wouldn't nobody convince him otherwise. Best not let the kitties wander about after dark. One night, she dreamed the mother cat was dying. Her elderly body lay curled in a wintry mountain den, breath labored, strength nearly gone. Mina sat with her in some spirit sense, stroking the fierce old head while once sharp eyes grew distant. She ran her fingers over a bare, jagged scar on the cat's right foreleg, a mark left years before by a narrow escape from a metal trap. Mina could hear the wind howling past the cave's opening, could see bright spots of stars in a clear night sky. The cat let go of her last breath like the trailing off of a whisper and a vision unfolded of an expanse of sun and sky and frozen water as the old cougar made her way home. pause of light on a field of brilliant blue. That glimpse of forever was almost too much for Nina to, to bear, so much that she thought she might actually die herself. How could she return to life as usual after seeing the other side of sorrow, of shadow, of death? This was the end and also a beginning. Take me with you she begged reaching even as the cat disappeared into white mina woke to find tears streaming into the woolen blanket tucked up around her chin
0: malia thank you so much just absolutely just absolutely stunning and Aww. beautiful i mean you you know your novel let's just jump right in i'm just so excited yeah, to, to, talk about, to talk that about it sounds great about. Um, I mean, there's this fair's Blood. It, it, it's just so gorgeous. And, and you know, like i had previously told you, just ecologically tender. Um, I
1: love that phrase. <laughs> I just have to say, I was like, that is just the best thing that you could possibly have said about it. Because it's, I don't know. It's just, so, <laughs> I really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. I mean, and, it, and, it, and it's true for listeners. It is just, you know, just ecologically tender. And so there's so many things behind that. And one of the things that really stuck with me while reading this is this sense that so, so much of what a novel can do is, is, is give us sort of a history, give us a temporal and familial history, right. um, because this surely is a generational odyssey. But more than that, you, you, you push the boundaries further than that, where it, it offers us sort of a vision and a view of a natural world beyond the human right, the, the, this, this, this tender ecological space in which humans do and coexist with ecology. There's a perspective
1: that didn't center humans.
0: Oh, I, I mean, you know- I, I just, I'm, I'm fascinated with that. So I, I, you know, not centering humans is probably one of the most complicated things you can do with the form of the novel, which is just absolutely obsessed with. Humans, right? right? <laughs> so
2: right. As, I, totally.
0: as, as I was reading this, I thought of uh, there's this, this really great book I've been reading on and off and on and off for a few years. It's called How Forests Think, okay. Um, Toward an Anthropology Beyond the Human. So it's by Eduardo Kohn. He's an Ecuadorian anthropologist. Um, but in there, he talks sort of about the Runa peoples of Ecuador's Upper Amazon. Uh, my, mm-hmm. my own grandmother is Kichwa indigenous, so they share similar histories. But yeah. excitingly, and more to the point, with your novel there are tales of jaguars and people who turn into jaguars or briefly inhabit their dreams Okay. and memories.
1: I've heard of this.
0: And there is yes. this, there is this,
1: Amazing. there
0: is this trace through sort of indigenous histories and memory, hundreds of years and surely in Latin yeah. America, um, where this is, this is cause and, and, and just sort of a gorgeous moment in which people or not subsumed by nature, but become part of it again. And I thought of your novel, we have the same thing. Mm-hmm. The mountain lion, you know, ending this beautiful section you read about when um, night she dreamed the mother cat was dying, but it's more than just a dream as we find out in the novel. It's right. so much more than inhabiting that so um, I have questions, ecological questions yes, for you. Yes, please. Um, I was just
1: gonna say too. In the Southwest, we have the shapeshifters.
2: Oh, right. Yes. I love so it. So
1: people who can take on forms, animals that can take on different forms. Yeah. And play
0: and these it,
1: roles that are uh, really just create stories, which is yeah. just so inspiring.
0: And it's it it's it's truly so this anthropology, you know, beyond the human. Is, is, is relatively new, but it's actually our oldest story. You know, yeah. it's the Industrial Revolution, like divorced us from the ecological. This is right. really, new. Right. you know, we're, we're like ecologically anxious because so many of us don't have the experiences that most of humanity has had. So your novel, so it brilliantly sort of addresses what are the consequences on individuals when they feel like they're being pulled by modernity away from the ecological. Mm-hmm. But you also sort of offer us a way forward um through this generational odyssey through these brilliant women over the course of a hundred plus years can you can you tell us can you talk a little bit about what the ecological really means for you not only in the writing of this novel but uh you know as an artist as a reader
1: sure yeah um and it's interesting that you would tie the two together this piece about the women and the piece about the ecological piece because For me, I feel like a lot of my formative experiences were being in nature with women in my family. Um, So a lot of the women in my family are deeply attuned to nature and, you know, they have all sorts of different practices and they're coming out of different, um, different traditions and different backgrounds but there's this one continuous thread, you know, like, it's kind wow. of like, you know, families there, we always have our dysfunctional pieces and our yes. problems and <laughs> yeah,
2: our of course.
1: wildness, but then there's also <laughs> like the connection and the wildness that is like, I don't know, that deep connection with lineage mm-hmm. um, yeah, and just the human connection. And for me, that was really like my best times were out in the woods, yeah. you know, uh, or like jumping in a river, or, yeah. You know. So yeah, so I dedicated the book to my grandmother, my maternal yeah. grandmother, um, who I realized actually she she died five years before I started writing this book. Wow. She died tragically. Oh, um, so
2: sorry.
1: Thank you, um, and then. This book is coming out almost exactly five years after I started writing it. So I, it's just like feels, so it's dedicated to her and also my great, great grandmother who inspired one of the characters, Um, her story. She's just like a family legend, you know? Um, And so, yeah, it's tied up with these these powerful women who have powerful connections with the natural world
0: it's it's so extraordinary I've, I've had quite a similar experience on the paternal side uh with my with my grandfather who's 102 oh, wow. he, he lives in ecuador in a small village that his own father founded a small farming village but he had been you know working as a as, as a farmer but also someone who deeply understood what the ecosystem um was for hundreds of years and my grandmother was Quechua, and so they had sort of implemented farming technologies and farming um yeah, farming technologies that had existed in the Inca culture for you know hundreds and hundreds and wow. hundreds of years. So I was those are the stories I grew up with visiting Ecuador. So so when I read this, I, I it, it's interesting in, in Latinx and Latino and in, in Latin American cultures mm-hmm. that this this drive towards memory tends to extend farther than I do see sort of in our North American comrades. Right, this There's march towards modernity, this indigenous
2: peace yeah.
1: mm-hmm. because and we you know I mean my family there's also it's funny because my grandfather and my grandparents were farmers too ranchers Um, Mm. they have cattle ranch they did cattle ranching in southern Colorado Um, they still do my grandma still lives there Um, and they also have indigenous heritage goes way back but also there's this piece of there was this whole piece of erasure of culture yeah Yeah. that's really you know, like the Southwest is, it's wow. just like, um, like my, my dad and his siblings were not taught Spanish because yeah. they were encouraged to assimilate into the more Western, like, like the white world.
2: Yeah.
0: And, and you have, you know, one thing I'll back up there, you, you, you have, and just to sort of continue that, you know, conversation with your experiences that you've been mm-hmm. able to have and, and sort of this, um, matriarchal line is is you offer something you offer something that is deeply historical tradition and also deeply forward thinking in your novel and and mm-hmm. you know the only I hate coding anything but the term that kept like popping in my brain is this this type mm. of ecological feminism this this type of like true this type of true historical almost ancient indigenous feminism that extends and it's what we absolutely need for our survival mm. in the future. You know, this is, this is not sort of like the neoliberal feminism which is centered around right. work, right? right? We go to work or, or, or sort of as comrades and as, as women we lean in, this is, this, is, right. this is a deeper sense whether it's the spiritual or whether it has to do with um, the ways in which families hold together, the ways in which memories and nations hold together. I, you know, I, I had a question which, which you perfectly answered about these experiences have be uh, experiencing nature with these matriarchs. Um, can can you tell us a little bit about moving forward, sort of about the mixed histories and cultures? You touched upon this this idea of like assimilation and sort of this obliteration, right, yeah. uh, of of Latinx and and, and Latino and Latin American cultures. Um, you know, we see it too. In Chicago, I, you know, during the time of Reagan, I'm dating mm-hmm. myself when I was when I was a little kid. I'll always remember the this woman who who was like a spiritual devotee of Reagan, who mm-hmm. constantly told me to stop speaking Spanish in kindergarten, who sent me to um, wow. who sent me to speech class for pronunciation and, and sort of this forced linguistic assimilation. I think about that all the time as a writer yeah. and what that has, what that does to children and, and how to reclaim that or fight against it. And and so you have you, you have you know three generations, three plus mm-hmm. generations um, of women who are not only not only actively fiercely fighting that, but are aware of the consequences of both assimilation and what it means to give up your indigenous past and also what that potentially means for forward for their daughters. Um, what, was, what was that like being mixed yourself in and, and the liminal spaces in which writers like you and I exist? are mixed and Latino. What was that like sitting down and and writing that over the course of of a story that um, contains three, four generations?
1: Yeah, I I think this is such an interest. I mean, this is such an interesting topic to me. And it's something that I saw in your book, too. Mm -hmm. Um, Sort of exploring. So it's like the Latinx, thing is always multiplicitous, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, people are always multiplicitous, yes. and and I think that people are so Pigeon. often pigeonholed um, as a certain type of writer, a certain type of person. And I just always really had a hard time yeah. with
0: that. Yeah, it's it's like a monoculture. <laughs> to be culture. Honest. Yeah, yeah. It's
1: like, it's like, you know, where the rebel resides in each of us. Like, my mm-hmm. rebel is there um, in this kind of, like, the way we draw boxes around people. Um, and so, for me, it was really about honoring all of the things
2: mm-hmm.
1: and not like, and it was hard, because it's easy to idealize certain things, certain aspects of ourselves, and to put down other aspects of ourselves or our histories.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And like, as an example, I am not Catholic, I'm not religious, but a lot of my, you know, family members are. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: so it was a challenge for me to like sort of authentically write about this while honoring it yeah. and also being true to myself um and i feel like through that practice like something and that's that's the book and i think that's what you're getting at is yeah yeah i mean very vague but um
0: no like you have like so for example for for those listening who will and absolutely should pick up your novel you know just to give it in concrete forms there's this there's this wonderful major josepha she's accused of witchcraft right and Mm -hmm. and she lives in in the, the near american west and she's accused of witchcraft um when she seeks to not only retain but sort of like use her indigenous ecological knowledge um, to heal other women before and during childbirth and 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 to not only sort of center her tradition but to use very real ecological and medicinal practice to save lives
1: right in
0: and in a part in a part of the united states in which, which so many people were otherwise abandoned um, right. Or we're sort of sort of fighting against sur- for survival. So it's and then being accused in, in a Catholic sense from from a terrible terrible <laughs> um, religious leader, um, not a good one, um, but to be accused of, of, of this sense of witchcraft being this, this this monoculture label of anything that was outside of what is sort of hierarchical and of course white. And and so, but you you did something more than that. You did something that I found so fascinating is that you didn't make this a song of just protest, right? A song of like uh, accusing someone of witchcraft is this terrible thing. You didn't make it just like a song. Josepha wasn't just a song or a a, a protest. What she was is it almost like inhabiting parallel universes. She thought about what not assimilating to a certain degree would do to her children, right? And so you have this as a parent, you know my parental sort of like fear and joy took over reading this and in the mm-hmm. sense of like what do we do for how do we teach our children that they are part of this indigenous history and how does that exist or subsist in a country that has tried to erase it and you don't give us answers you don't give us the easy protest song you give us a character who who whose consciousness and spirituality is pulled in right. many many directions I just thought it was a it was a brilliant juncture to do that and not give your readers sort of any easy answers. Right. Um, it 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 showed me how much you inhabited um, as an artist what those liminal sort of unknown spaces can do mm-hmm. to the individual.
1: I appreciate you saying that. Um. And I think I think part of that process for me was um. Just this realization or understanding that. Um women do that
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <yes. laughs>
1: like like as especially, I mean, but not even just as parents, just like I I feel like there's a lot of pressure to mm-hmm. to I mean to please and to to go along with what society wants to do in in a survival sense yeah. you know, we want to, not only survive we want to thrive and so that's one of my questions you know like yeah how were my ancestors able to do that how can i do that um mm. in these different time periods where the challenges are different how can we be informed by what has come before or how can yeah. we be strengthened or empowered by that because so many of these stories are also sad you know yeah. like our our ancestor stories they there's a lot of pain and there's a mm-hmm. lot of trauma and suffering and And of course that carries through and there's the whole epigenetic piece of like, what do we inherit through our blood? Like what do we feel even if we didn't personally understand it? Like we know from science that this is something that happens. and so what's the other part of that? Yeah,
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah. What's
1: the joy that we inherit? And what is the, these all the, you know, you're talking about these traditions um, you, that are, that have been lost or that feel um, like they've been, they've been uh, uh, quieted, you know? Yeah. Like they've been pressed down like you with the language in mm-hmm. Chicago growing up, it's like, you but there's still i i guess my sense was we can call on on other things yeah you know yeah. we can call on whatever this process was and like also be strengthened by it and see it as sort of mm-hmm. a fight you know yeah. like the good fight it's it's we we things happen and we get through them and we become different and that's not all bad and it's not all good
2: but it it is
0: yeah it's extraordinary how much of that good fight is is language you know i I was saying that language and i grew up speaking you know i I grew up speaking spanglish and i grew up speaking my my mother's family is lithuanian jewish so Mm -hmm. there's some yiddish and spanish and 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 sort of english from Chicago, which is inhabited by just multitude of, of other different languages, and, and and when reading this, I kept thinking when reading your novel, I, I kept thinking too, you know, there's a sense of like I always think about like unstable reality. So literature today is is, is I really think in North America has entered some some stages of unstable realism, and, and, and Latin American literature has been doing that for quite some time, and you know the. The literature is sort of at the end, I hate to to be so dark, but it's sort of at the end of what we consider modern life, you know, when we consider climate change, when we consider sort of this declining capitalism or end of empire, whatever you might sort of like label it as, but the literature itself, I feel, is starting to resemble, and I saw this in your novel so profoundly starting to resemble the type of literature that existed before modern life.
2: Mm, so you have yeah. this
0: love and fear of ecology, uh, surely a mm. respect, right? Surely, like respect we're being
1: forced it. to pay attention to the things that we were,
0: yeah, able to
1: just overlook for so long.
0: Sort of like this sense of otherworldly horizons in which we have to just throw our hands in the air and. And, and realize right. there are there are, there are things bigger than us, you know, and that and not yes. necessarily always in a religious, yes. Catholic or even indigenous sense, like there are otherworldly horizons. There are things bigger than us, things beyond sort of sovereign borders, which I know that right. next Southwest Latin American cultures are, are very aware of the borders that have been placed on them by empire and things. So I I, I really like uh, uh, you know writers such as yourself, you're sort of on this cusp of, of not sort of reinventing literature, but reinventing it in a way that fiercely remembers, mm-hmm. you know, or inhabits the types of literature that that existed pre-modernity. And and, and I think it's it's a beautiful place to work from.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I just I wanted to ask: Is there was there sort of this conscious effort of fusing different types of literatures? whether it was Latinx literatures, indigenous literatures and, and North American literatures. And how did that, let, let's, get into the, let's get into the weeds. How does that impact your actual writing when we think about voice and structure and style? Did, did, did you find yourself having competing voices in your, in your artistic life or, or, or were you able to fuse it in a way that, that made sense for you in the, in the book?
1: That's an interesting question. Um because okay so yes
0: it was a very long question too so (laughs) sorry malia
1: yes is the answer um so so when i was reading like is and rudolfo anaya um and all of these I mean magical realism was definitely a, a formative and also like very um, I it, it you know when a certain thing just feels like it opens up, up a whole new world. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um,
1: yeah, it was like revelatory for me. Um, and but at the same time, like I read, I am not a I'm not a snob, like I'll read yeah. anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like with this particular work, I, okay, so I'll just like digress a little bit and say, I have two kids um, and they're now eight and 11. And after I had my babies, hmm. you know, like postpartum can be a really hard time. Yeah. And I found that I could not handle any challenging content like in yeah, what yeah. I was reading so I went through this phase of reading like only British romance novels
0: nice that's a good phase
1: <laughs> um, and it was actually kind of like really like it was this was um, like my doorway into fiction yeah. into writing fiction So uh, yeah. wow. I've always awesome. been a book a bookworm and I've always read anything, but it was like having this actual emotional block to anything diverse um, brought me into this very, like sort of particular form where I was able to sort of like teach myself how to write like plot, you know, and structure a, a novel. So, Um. So there's like that piece where like, and and I really appreciated that, like deep, deeply appreciated mm. having that available to me at that time in my life, um, that emotional journey. Like I didn't need anything that was like, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, anything more than that. I I I, I had always grown up with uh, and loved science fiction, but after I have a four year old and a two year old, and um, shortly, you know, during the crazy period after they're born, um. I, I just dug back into that past reading. Yeah. Science fiction and I the four-year-old had a, had a had a had a pretty bad illness for a year and a half which has since thankfully passed and it was during that time where my idea of prestige literature just collapsed around the crisis of my life and I realized yeah. I should be reading any goddamn thing that makes me what have fun and what bring,
1: that
0: brings me back that to makes, comfort. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yes. And I think that, you know, when I was a little kid, that's what I was reading was like, you mm-hmm. read, you read these little like babysitter's pub and, <laughs> and stuff like <laughs> that, you know? So it's like very comforting and there's real value in the comfort. Yeah. And so I think while I was, you know, working with real, um, you know, a lot of complex themes in this project, there's also just that piece of like I want it to be enjoyable yeah. and
0: I want it to be accessible
1: and I just want it to be like a little journey that yeah go I, on, you know? I you know
0: when, when you had when 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 we had first started talking and 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 you had introduced me that your novel not only existed in the world but I mm-hmm. you know I read two pages and I was like I just want to talk sign me up we're going to read it I want to talk to you. like it yeah. it it enters this it entered for me this, this sort of like quiet space in which you can tackle these large issues right, of lineage and history and assimil- assimilation. Excuse me, being assimilated, um, obliteration of memory, yeah. ecological tenderness—all these big things. But when you when you just read it at the heart, it's familiar stories. It's familial stories. It's people in love,
2: mm-hmm. people who end up
0: heartbroken. I don't want to give away too much, but the first section broke my heart in, in a very. Aww very good way right a way that 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 sort of made sense um when you think not only sort of like in your own life and your own heartbreakness throughout grant but historical heart brokenness yeah. and people who can't be together because of the conditions of what america offers whether it's white supremacy right. or whether it's sort of this obliteration of memory so it, it's but it did all those things that good literature does is it offered this 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 perspective of individuals going through these catastrophic and mm-hmm. joyful times. Yeah. I also want to say that's something that separates like the New York Times, they might call like trauma, you know, they, uh, trauma porn or whatever people yeah. wanna call it. it. It it extends into joy. That's the thing. That's the thing that's sort of like that tender Latinx literature and that history does is it just, a, it's not one sort of fault line after another, after another. It's not sort of this idea of presenting our people right. um, and, as people have just gone through hell.
1: Right.
0: It, it, you center joy
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you center, whether they're tender moments, whether they're louder, you, whether they're experiences with nature and, and this, these mountain lines that sort of carry through this nature of, <laughs> of lineage for a hundred plus years, but you center joy. And so I, it's no surprise to me that sort of like finding your way into writing, you were reading things that made you joyful. It makes perfect yeah. sense to me. Yeah, I, it, it, I, I connected to that quite deeply.
1: important to me. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, it feels like one of those central things that, you know, and, you know, I, I've, I feel like I have also been concerned at times, you know, about centering mm-hmm. joy that people are going to yeah. be like, oh, it's so naive. And it's like, well, yeah, you could look at it that way. <laughs> mm.
0: Well, the we, you know, the reality is, 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 you know, I taught, um, I taught high school dropouts for ten years. I've, mm-hmm. I've you know, currently working on, um, at my day job organizing a union, and it, it's interesting that when you come into contact with people who have the most to leverage and fight against,
1: yeah,
0: one of the one of the primary things that connects them, and that solidarity, is centering around the joy of now and the joy of what a future can be yeah so what what is naive is irony yes sort of sort of the north american irony is is to me quite naive actually
1: i i think so i think this is the cynicism i've i've just definitely had a hard time with cynicism you know um and i agree and i think um People are more and more, especially coming out of the very challenging time of the past. Yeah. You know, um, that, like, okay, I just can't take anymore. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I just need to see the beauty in this, and yeah. the secret of beauty is that it's not all, all light, you know, like fluff yeah. and light. That that there is like. A dark element of beauty too, yeah. and I think that this is the thing that can like potentially carry us. You know,
0: and and, and you fight for that joy. In, in the final section, you have a family who moves cross country. You know, they 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 go back and find their origin, but they 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 truly find themselves in a position in opening a summer camp at the center of this forest where, uh, the, this beautiful landscape where where the novel begins. But you have a family mm-hmm. who is fighting um for not only stability and sort of a better future but also that joy
1: right
0: that 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 joy that has sustained them for 100 years and and so uh I felt that throughout and and that not only made it such a quick and rewarding read but something I've thought about over the past couple weeks constantly in terms of like yes we're faltering you know my my kids are not yet they can't get vaccinated so it feels like this faltering step towards can the pandemic pulling us Sort of in these oscillating, twitching spasms of like, are we out yet? Are we not out? But what it does is 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 it centers the joy. I, I went on such long walks with my older kid during the early stages of the pandemic, and you fight for it. It's 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 and it's not. You know, the irony doesn't work well when you're trying to fight for your basic day to day life. You know, it collapses. Right, so, like we
1: have to keep going. Like if we give correct. up, we'll. We will yeah. flounder.
0: And I, yes, and, and your characters and your characters, you know, this, this generation of women, they they, they do that and, and with such a sense of ownership um, and such a sense of beauty, I, mm. I, I, I responded to it so well. I, I have one big question. I know we're, we're kind of running out on time and I feel like we could talk yeah. about this for, for a long, long time, <laughs> but I, I really want to know, too, what... What can novels do? So so this is, in some sense, it's a contemporary and a historical novel. What can novels do that history can't? Whether it's Mm. history books or the recitation recitation of history, what can the form of the novel do that history can't?
1: And I think this is a good question for you as well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because, I mean, I think that this is like one of the like mm-hmm. interest between our two approaches to the multi-generational novel is finding i mean it seems like i i know i observe you you know like your approach to sort of um addressing these large sort of disasters and these long time periods mm-hmm. and also focusing on matriarchs um,
2: yeah.
1: um, and, and these people who are who are just making their way sort of in their wake almost yeah. um, that but then you have this piece about like the, the physics and the science fiction and the loophole and like I know for me like it was also about these little like portals into like what's really happening here and what's real and what's not and i think in novels we can play with that yeah. and that's what history can't do because you have to cite everything yes, and you yes. have to reference it and you ha- it has to be grounded in what is so-called fact and um novels don't are not restricted yeah. in that sense.
0: You, you know, one thing, one thing I think about so much in, in terms of, of your novel too, is um, Eduardo Galeano, he, he, if you're familiar, if listeners are not familiar with him, mm-hmm. just extraordinary uh, Uruguayan writer, um, he has this memory of fire trilogy in which he rewrites three, 400 years of Latin American history and vignettes and fictional vignettes I read it when I was really young, and I think I, mm-hmm. I still think about it all the time. It really impacted me. But when he opens the when he opens the first book, you know, the first book, he says, "I was a terrible history student," mm. and he talks about history was presented as one. You know, I'm paraphrasing, but he talks about how history is presented as one reality. Right. It's the reality that is created. It's the sovereign national reality that was so right. Often. And so the whole experience of reading those three books for me was also, you know, pretty relevatory in the sense of like, history is the one reality we've been given. Of course, we have now over the past 20 years been able to reclaim some of the real history, right. real people's history and indigenous right. history, a Black right. and Latinx history, but that's relatively new. And, so, it and, and, and
1: it's
0: and, exciting. Yeah. It's, yeah. I
1: find it really exciting. I love seeing all these new like all these new stories and and it really does feel like an opportunity to go back and go over history mm-hmm. again yeah from all these different perspectives and it comes back to that concept of multiplicity where there's just so i mean we are all yeah. tiny universes right
0: <laughs> yeah, <So>. yes, yes. <laughs> and and you know and i just want to say before before we have to end and run out of time that one thing that this ferris blood does does is listeners please 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 go to skylight order call them please please pick up this beautiful gorgeous novel Uh, but one thing it one thing it really really does in terms of the type of history we're talking about is that it reclaims it I think it does something more than history can do Um, a novel like yours reclaims the experience of history and it's closer to I know it's a cliche but it does feel closer to the truth than what's sort of like shoved down our throats in fifth grade um, oh. in textbooks. So yeah. um, please everyone out there, um, I know we have to come to an end, but just absolutely you want to pick up this novel. It's just stunning. Well,
1: I am All so right. honored by that <laughs> statement. Thank you, Michael. I yeah, appreciate absolutely. so much and your your wonderful questions.
2: So I second Thank what you. Michael said, go pick it up.
1: <laughs> um,
2: I, so everyone knows right when this right now, the book is on display in our podcast section. Yay. So go no grab way. a copy. Yes, it's fully, <laughs> awesome. it's fully on display right in the front of our store. Please go pick up a copy. Um, I know Mike will also be there pointing to it. Just like- (laughs) I can send a photo. (laughs) Send a photo. We'll just have pointing there. Just the number one fan will write that (laughs) (laughs) too. No, thank you so much, both of you. This has been such a great conversation to hear you both have. Malia, congratulations on this book. It's uh, just, I mean, it feels like it should be out there in the world. So thank you for (laughs) writing it thank you um, so much no problem do any of you have anything you would like to say to the listeners in the independent bookstore community as a whole yeah I just quickly want to say that um you know
0: you know the independent you know since I was a punk rock skater kid when I was 16 and I wander their Wonder Books, um, you know, Women Children's First, my local one is the Bookseller, which has been supportive of a literary magazine and my work for just 15 years now, and being able to bring my kids to those places pre-pandemic, but not only that, just the absolute support of readers and bookstores and indies um, during this pandemic has been a type of lifeblood. Having conversations like this when we're all home has been a type of grace, and so it's without you know, without those indie bookstores, I think I would have been quite adrift, not only in this past year and a half, but I think for like most of my life. So thank you. So for listeners out there, please go to an indie before anywhere else. Um, you need them. You need them. Trust me.
1: Absolutely. What what Michael said, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, and I actually got to go to, I was at Skylight last night, actually, for, I think, for yeah, and it's such a beautiful bookstore with so many great books, and um, I think it was your first in-person event since the pandemic. It was another author um, from, uh, published by Acre Books, um, Steve Dejarna of collection of stories and it was just so wonderful to be there um so yes if you can get your book from skylight or another independent bookstore absolutely yes oh and god. thank you so much
2: thank you, thank you for coming by oh my god thank you for, <laughs> for yeah, coming support all the authors no yeah and so come support your authors guys your favorite authors and your new or maybe your new favorite authors but um <laughs> who are on this podcast right now cough 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 um no thank you so much both of you uh, malia's book is currently on display as we said this fierce blood and michael you can order michael's books too through skylight books so there's no excuse Yeah, have no excuses what i'm saying um thank you both again for being on our podcast and to our listeners thank you for either coming back or listening for the first time and I hope you have a beautiful and wonderful rest of your day thank you thank you
1: thank you thank you for listening to the skylight books podcast series please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on twitter and instagram Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.